Good morning, and welcome to Wednesdays in the Word. I'm so glad you could be with me today as we continue in our study of God's Word verse by verse. We're in the midst of the book of Romans. We just have finished the first three chapters, and today we enter into chapter 4. I'm going to pick up the reading today in chapter 4, verse 1 of the book of Romans. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by his works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Quote, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, end of quote. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from his works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. As you know, if you've been with me and we've been working our way through the book of Romans, the first three chapters have one overarching message to us, and that is that everybody needs the gospel. As Romans 1.16 put it, is that gospel which is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Now, why does everybody need that? Because everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not just that they've not lived a perfect life, but that by sinning, there's a consequence of that sinning. One cannot dwell in the presence of our God who is really there, who is not only loving, but just and holy and righteous. One can't dwell in his presence with sin. And all of us have to make an accounting before him of our lives. The result of that, as Ephesians 2 developed for us, is that all of us therefore stand hopeless and helpless and without God, in this world. We are in a place where unless God does something, we're in big trouble with no solution. But of course, what we saw also in those opening chapters is that God, in fact, did something. He sent his only son into this world to live a perfect life, who then died on the cross for us and shed his blood for us. God's great solution to the impossible circumstances of all of our lives. That is the gospel, what Jesus has done. But we ended chapter 3 with the reminder that it's not enough that that happened. It's not enough that in our minds we even intellectually accept that it happened, that all of us must receive what was done for us by faith, respond to it, accept the truth of it, stop trusting in ourselves and start trusting in Christ and turn from our going our own way and begin to go God's way now, approving and accepting his purpose and plan in our life. <clears throat> well, there it is. That's what we've studied. Uh, you say, well, why did it take so many weeks? Well, <laughs> it, it takes a long time to cover those chapters. Now, today, chapter 4 picks up the study with opening up two examples from the Old Testament that underscore the wonder of justification. The wonder of being made right before God, not by the things that we do, but by the things we choose to trust that God has said. 
The first of the examples that he gives us is Abraham, uh, where he was trusting in God's promise to him, a promise made prior to the giving of the law. And the second example is King David, who was trusting God's promise of forgiveness, a forgiveness that couldn't be rooted in anything that was temporarily done to cover sin, but ultimately was rooted in the promise that God would eventually provide the perfect lamb to cover over the consequences of sin in our life. After looking at those two examples, then chapter 4 turns our attention back to Abraham and develops Abraham's example and lessons from Abraham's life in a much more extended way. That's where we're headed today. Let's examine these two examples that God is giving us to underscore the truth of chapters 1 to 3 of justification by faith being our only hope, our only answer for the dilemma of our sin. He begins by saying, Abraham, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Now, when people are looking for an example of faith, frequently, or an example of good works and pleasing life, uh, Abraham often comes up to the front. You know, he was the father of the Jews, the beginning of the promised people. And people look at his life and his confidence in God, leaving a land, following God's purpose and plan, and so forth. And often look at him as, boy, he had a lot of good works. God had to have accepted him. But what was it that allowed Abraham to find acceptance with God? What is it that gave Abraham an assurance of eternal life, a promise of forgiveness and solution to his problem, which was also our problem, of sin and failure before God? Because that problem is there no matter how good a job we do with the moral, ethical choices of life. All of us still stumble in those areas, let alone stumble in the fulfillment of the greatest of the commandments to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, the core question, how did Abraham find peace with God, this great founder of the Jewish line? How did he find, did it come through his efforts? Did it come through his determination? Did it come through his works? If it did, then he would have some reason to, as it puts it here, boast before God. And from a human standpoint, if one was looking for a reason to try to boast, uh, he would be a good example. And anyone who would have seemingly have legitimacy to a boast before God, it would seem to be Abraham. <clears throat> but uh, that isn't how Abraham found right standing with God. If he had a reason to boast, if it was the product of his determined effort to do what God told him to do, that he was saved, that he had a future and a hope, then he would be a contradiction to everything we'd been studying in the opening chapters of Romans. So how do we make sense of it? Well, in verse 3, what does the scripture say? What an amazing phrase, by the way. What does scripture say? Now, I challenge you, take that phrase, Romans 4.3, write it out on a 3 by 5 card, put it on the mirror, uh, put it on a display and a plaque. 
Put it where you can see it every single day. <laughs> Scripture is the place we turn to find answers. Only the Scripture can give us clarity. Only the Scripture can give us direction. What does the Scripture say? Oh, may we all have that going around in our head always as a reminder. When we're perplexed about something, what does the Scripture say? <laughs> Turn to what God has chosen to reveal. Remember, all Scripture is inspired by God. God breathed, useful to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, to train us. The Scriptures are where we find truth. God commands us to examine the facts of the Word. He doesn't say, listen, I want you to spend some time just in meditation and reflection on your own ideas. I don't want you to spend time trying to reason some things out. I want you to spend time looking at my revelation to you, which is written down objectively, propositionally, in the Scriptures. What does the Scriptures say? <laughs> what does the Scripture say about the issue before us? And it's certainly application now to Abraham. What does the Scripture actually tell us about Abraham? That's the reason that we're commanded in 2 Timothy 2.15 to study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that need not be ashamed, that rightly handle or rightly divide the word of truth. What does the scripture say? If you've got a core question in your life and you don't know what the scriptures say about it, get busy. Find out what God has said about it. Don't turn to what men say about it. Turn to what God has said about it. All of life's most important questions are answered by God. As we carefully study his word, we will come to see what is truly right and true. Things that God has revealed to us, not human beings have come up with. We don't discover truth through human debate. We don't discover truth through discussion, which is ultimately just a pooling of human ignorance. We don't find truth through extended philosophical deliberations. <laughs> Why? Because when it comes to truth about life's most important questions, it matters very little what you think. It matters very little what I think. It matters very little what anybody thinks. What matters completely and totally is what God says about it. Not what we think, but what God says. And as we turn to his word, as we discover what the scripture says about it, then we begin to understand the light in the framework of the darkness and futility of thinking characteristic of this world. Reading and studying, following sound rules of interpretation to unfold God's word answers all of the fundamental questions. So let's take that principle, and once again, I hope I've driven it home to you, and you're already writing these that verse, Romans uh, 4, 3, down on a 3 by 5 card of some sort. Well, at any rate, what does the scripture tell us, what does it say about Abraham on this all-important issue of how did he find peace with God? And the answer to that is that Abraham found peace with God 
He was justified before God based on his trust, his faith in what God had promised him, his reliance upon what God had promised him, not upon any works that he had accomplished. The place we see some of that scripture proof is found in Genesis chapter 15, verses 5 to 6. Let me read these verses to you. Talking about God now. And God brought him, meaning Abraham, outside, and he said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. God was dealing with Abraham. He took him outside. And he showed him the land, and he shocked to him about an heir. God had made promises to Abraham about the land that he would send him to would be his land in the land of his, of his future generations. And of course, he had moved him to Israel, what we now call Israel. But he was in Israel, but he was only a sojourner there, a pilgrim. It was controlled by the Canaanites and others. Uh, he was simply a dwelling in tents. But God said, this will be your land, even though you don't see it to be your land right at the moment. Secondly, now God in Genesis 15 was promising to him an heir. He was promising him a son through whom the promises would be fulfilled. He didn't have any son at this point. He was childless at this point. It was only later that God worked that miracle so that he and his wife Sarah could conceive and have Isaac in their old age. God was promising him about a land. He was promising him about a son. And he was promising him about the future and what God would choose to do in expanding his line, a line ultimately that we'll discover in Romans is a line of faith, he made these promises to him, and they still were not there to be seen. They were promises of which there was no current evidence. So how did Abraham respond to that? It tells us here, he believed God. He accepted the promise. He rested in it. He said, this is not just intellectually true. I'm going to rest in it. I'm going to trust in it. I'm going to rely upon it. And what did God say? And God counted it to him as righteousness. By the way, counting it to him is what justification means, as we already saw at the end of the third chapter of the book of Romans, to be credited with the righteousness of life. Christ credits us with his perfect life when we respond in faith. Credited righteousness, reckoned to him, counted it to him as righteousness. In John chapter 8, verse 58, it says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and he was glad. In other words, Abraham understood the promise of God that was being made to him, not just about an offspring of, of Isaac in the possession of the land, but God's promised fulfillment of all of that inheritance was going to come, and there would be the offspring 
the one through whom all promises would be fulfilled. That would be, as we came to see, the Lord Jesus Christ. But he saw it from centuries before, and he trusted God about it. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He did see it by faith, and he was glad. Uh, trusting God's promise, even when in the present, we don't see the evidence for it. It's enough for us that God says it, and we trust him about it. Isn't that the essence of the gospel message, my friends? <laughs> you don't see the evidence of it in the moment, but you're trusting what God is promising you, that this gospel, in fact, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes despite the fact that we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God and that the wages of our sin is death. Are you trusting God? <laughs> In Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, we pick up on this same theme. It says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. <laughs> As I said, Abraham understood by the prompting of the Holy Spirit that what God was referring to wasn't merely a natural son to him, but the promised generations would ultimately find their fulfillment in solution and the offspring, the one who would be the Messiah, the Christ. Well, what do we learn from this? Well, what we learn is that Abraham, picking up on what we learned at the end of the third chapter, Abraham reveals to us in his example that crucial difference between standing before God with a credited righteousness over against trying to stand before God on some sort of created righteousness that we've been able to achieve through our efforts. As verse 4 and 5 put it, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. By faith, trusting God's great promises to him, Abraham found a credited righteousness. Now let's talk a little bit more about the distinction between a personally created righteousness and a credited righteousness. Those who are trying to create their own righteousness to try to stand before God on the basis of their best efforts, they have a created righteousness, and when it comes to salvation, their wages for acting the way that they're trying to act are seen as their due. Now, what do I mean by that? A person who's oriented toward trying to earn their salvation looks to God and they said, listen, I've worked hard. I've earned the right to go to heaven. I deserve to go to heaven. I deserve to be in your presence. But that position essentially rejects all of the teaching from Romans 1 through Romans 3. It, it rejects the fundamental reality that sin separates us from God. And once we've sinned, doesn't matter how much righteousness we try to do, we can't offset the stain and reality of having sinned and fallen before God. Those that try to work their way to heaven come before God saying, you owe me this. I'm doing my best. I need to go to heaven because at least I'm trying. Those 
like Abraham, instead, who say, no, <laughs> I can't work my way to heaven. I'm going to trust in the promises that God has given me instead. They don't look at salvation as their due. They don't look at it as something that they've earned. They come before God trusting in what God has done for them. They come before God trusting in the work of another. They come before God saying, as in the as the opening line of one of the great old gospel hymns, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. <laughs> that is the one trusting in credited righteousness. Abraham trusted God's promises. And God said, on the basis of that, I credit you with righteousness. You are now justified in my eyes. You are now one with a future and a hope, not because you've earned it, but because you've trusted in my promises on how to be saved. The essence of the gospel. Well, the second of the illustrations that he gives us here in these verses turns attention to David, King David, and how David also reflects to us one who is trusting in the promises of God rather than their own personal efforts. David's example that we encounter throughout the Old Testament in the Kings, we discover how his example clarifies for us what faith-based forgiveness is all about. King David loved the Lord, but he certainly stumbled in grievous ways at times in his life, as all of us have as all of us do. David understood the reality of his own sin. He understood the reality of his guilt. He understood the reality of his separation from God that came from that sin. But he also knew the blessing of forgiveness. He knew the blessing of covering. Now, how could he find that? because he trusted God's promises regarding forgiveness, a forgiveness ultimately that would be rooted in his own offspring, the Davidic king who would give his life for the salvation of many. How could God provide forgiveness and cleansing to the undeserving person? And none of us deserve it. How could he do that and still be holy and righteous and just? And of course, the answer, as Romans 1 to 3 underscored for us, <laughs> is that he can do that through a perfect sacrifice, not just a person who dies, because that would be the, that would be what would be required for them personally to be saved. But the very word made flesh and dwelt among us, the very son of God, his perfect life, satisfying the payment for sin could be credited to others who place their faith and trust in him. In Romans 4 here, what we find are some quotes from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there was no deceit. David knew that he was a sinner before God. He knew it. He knew the reality 
of accountability before God. And he also knew that there was nothing ultimately he could do to save himself. There was nothing ultimately he could do to resolve the consequences of his sin choice. He knew that God had to do something. And as he began to see what the scripture says, he discovered God had promised temporarily to cover sin through sacrifice, the blood sacrifices in the temple, and that ultimately sin would be covered by the perfect sacrifice of the promised coming Lamb of God. He saw the promise. He knew the reality of his own failure. And he said, I'm going to trust God's promise. I am going to confess my sin to God. Not ask him to just somehow overlook it. Somehow understand that I was trying to do my best and I still stumble. No, no. I'm going to admit it and confess my sin before him. And then I will discover the forgiveness that he grants, not because I deserve it, but because in his mercy and love, he has sent a solution for the sin of his life. He knew God would do something that he couldn't do, which was atone for his wrong. And so he trusted in the promised solution that God had provided for him. He knew that there would come a day when God would do what had to be done so as he puts it here, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin, verse 8. He knew God had to do something and would do something to make that a reality. David rested in God's mercy and solution to sin, not in his own sense of being worthy or deserving of forgiveness any more than Abraham rested in his own best efforts to find acceptance before God. Both of them trusted in the promises of God because they knew what the scriptures said. You now know what the scripture says about the impossibility of you doing something about your sin and the absolute necessity of you trusting in what God has done to solve the sin problem, the gospel, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. As a result of the trust that David showed, he became an example in the Old Testament of one who found, as it put it here, the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Abraham discovered the blessing of being one to whom God counts righteousness. All of us who have placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ have found the blessing of being credited with the righteousness of Christ rather than trying to earn our salvation. Only in Christ is it possible for you and I to be in a situation where God can count no iniquity against us. Only Christ's death makes justification possible for us. So on this day, are you resting in a faith-based acceptance before God, resting in what Jesus Christ has done for you, the gospel promises? Or are you instead resting in some fashion in your own created righteousness, trying to establish your own right standing, and then believing that God owes it to you to honor your best efforts? What's true of you on this day? Well, 
Join me next time, Lord willing, we'll continue on in the fourth chapter, returning once again to Abraham and learning some more of the examples that he has provided for us that underscore the wonder of the gospel. Have a great day and week.